have questions. Questions like, why is it called a building if it's already built? Why is there no egg in eggplant? And do penguins have knees? But some questions are more important than others. We gave a survey to find your most asked questions. Every week, we're gonna answer your most asked questions and discover God's best plan, because you asked for it. So I wanna begin this morning by asking you three questions. And as I ask you these questions, I don't want you to answer me out loud. Regardless of how passionate you may be in your answer, regardless of how much you may think your answer is right, I don't want you to answer me out loud. You can answer as loud as you want in your mind, but don't answer out loud. Here's the first question. Should a Christian go to the wedding of a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor who is gay? Let me ask again. Should a Christian go to the wedding of a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, who is gay? Second question. Should a Christian go to a bar or parties where people are getting drunk, getting high, or hooking up? Let me ask again. Should a Christian go to a party or a bar where people are getting drunk, getting high, or, or hooking up? Here's the third question. Should a Christian go to a concert if that concert has, has inappropriate lyrics or jokes in it? Sexually vulgar jokes. Let me ask again. Should a Christian go to a concert or a show if, if there are sexually explicit or, or morally offensive, inappropriate lyrics or jokes? Now, if you are a genuine Christ follower, I can promise you this. You've struggled at one time or another as to how to answer that question. Because the answer to that question affects the question that we're going to try to answer this morning as we look at God's Word and as we continue our series, you ask for it. And here's the question that was submitted by one of you. How do you reconcile living above reproach and hanging out with sinners? It's a good question. How do you reconcile living above reproach and hanging out with sinners? In other words, how can you and I be a friend of sinners and yet live our life separate from sin? That's the real question, isn't it? I mean, how can you and I be friends to people who are far from God and yet at the same time separate ourselves from the sin of this world? Now, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has just called Matthew to be one of his disciples. Now, you need to understand something about Matthew. He is one of the most hated, despised people in Israel. He is a tax collector. He is considered one of the worst of the worst. He is a sinner above most sinners. But when Matthew met Jesus, his life was changed. And when his life was changed, he wanted his friends to meet Jesus. And so Matthew did what he knew to do. He threw a party and he invited all of his friends who were far from God to meet Jesus because Jesus had changed his life. And in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, this is what it says. 
while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now it's obvious that, that these religious leaders in Jesus' day didn't think that a religious man should be hanging out with the type of people that Jesus was hanging out with. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders in Jesus' day prided themselves on staying far away from sinners. They would avoid the type of people were at this party at all costs. And yet, here was Jesus always in the midst of sinners. Here was Jesus always surrounded by sinners. Whenever these religious people saw the people that Jesus hung out with, they would look at them and they would think, you're too bad. You're too messed up. You have too much baggage to be a part of, of our little holy huddle. But when Jesus saw these people, he would look at them and say, you're, you're welcome here. Come, be a part of the kingdom of God. That's why these religious leaders began to call Jesus a friend of sinners. And understand, in their mind, it wasn't a compliment. They were using this phrase to criticize Jesus. A couple of chapters later in, in Matthew chapter 11, this is what Jesus said about the religious leaders. In verse 19, he said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now what these people didn't realize is this was a perfect description of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is a friend of sinners. But here's the problem. You see, when many people read this verse, or when many people hear that phrase, friend of sinners, they picture Jesus chugging down brews, telling coarse jokes around the woodworking shop or on the beach cooking fish. And that could be further from the truth. That is just not who Jesus was. You see, Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was the embodiment of God. And so when the Bible speaks of God, it is pictured in Jesus. When we read the Old Testament and we, we read that God is like this, we open up the New Testament and we see, here's Jesus and Jesus lived this. And yet the Bible says that he was holy, he was pure. He was without sin. And so here's Jesus. He's this friend of sinners. The religious people hated him because he was hanging out with them. And yet at the same time, he was sinless. He was pure. He was separate from sinners. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. It says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest as Jesus, who was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. This verse tells us that Jesus was not only holy, Jesus was not only innocent, Jesus was not only undefiled, he was separate from sinners. But if you ever read the Gospels, you know that this isn't referring to where Jesus was, but rather who Jesus was and how he lived. 
You see, Jesus didn't separate himself from sinners in regard to location, but he did separate himself from the sinful practices of the world. So here's Jesus. Jesus was this friend of sinners, and yet in the midst of hanging out with sinners, he was perfectly sinless. Now here are two things that you need to understand about Jesus that I believe you need to see in each and every one of us. And so these two things are seen in Jesus, and they need to be seen in us. Here's the first thing. Jesus loves the people of the world. All the people of the world. Regardless of what we have done, regardless of where we have been, regardless of how far we have fallen, Jesus loves us. He always has, and he always will. Jesus loved the prostitutes. He loved the tax collectors. He loved the thieves. He loved everyone. But here's what you need to understand. When the Bible says Jesus was a friend of sinners, that includes you. Because the Bible says we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says just like sheep, we've all gone astray. Every one of us have turned to our way rather than God's way. And though our sins may be seen different than other people's sins, the Bible says that we are all sinners. So I, for one, am thankful that Jesus loves sinners. I am thankful that Jesus is a friend of sinners because regardless of whether we are a Mag Mary Magdalene who was a prostitute possessed by demons or a Matthew who was a tax collector who took advantage of people or this unnamed woman who was caught in the very act of adultery or, or the woman at the well who had been married five times or the thief who was dying on the cross or Nicodemus who was trying to please God by being religious or this, this, this rich young ruler who felt like he was good enough to attain God's, God's righteous standard regardless of who we are we need God's love we need God's mercy we need God's grace and here's what I know when we experience the love of God we are called to show the love of God. Those who are recipients of the grace and the mercy of, of the Lord are to express that grace and mercy to others. And so Jesus loves the world. Jesus loves sinners, which includes each and every one of us in this room. But here's the second thing you need to know about Jesus. His life was untouched by the sinful things of the world. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then your life is to be untouched by the sinful things of the world. This is, this is what the Bible says about us in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 17. It says, therefore come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. Now some people have taken that verse to, to think that, that Christians are to live in isolation. We are to separate ourselves as far as our location from the people who are in the world. But that's not what this verse is saying at all. This verse is a quotation of Isaiah 52 verse 11. A verse that is describing when God led Israel out of captivity 
in Babylon. And God is telling his people that when you leave Babylon, don't take anything with you that will remind you of sinful Babylon. Don't take anything with you that comes from sinful Babylon. You see, they were in captivity in Babylon as a result of their sin. They were in captivity because of their rebellion. But when God came and set them free, they were to move from that captivity of sin and live in obedience to God. And that's what God calls each and every one of us to do. When God comes into our life and through His grace rescues us, we are to leave the life of captivity and begin a new life. Now, does this mean that that we separate ourselves from sinners? Yes. But what that means is we separate ourselves by the way we live. We are to live different than those people who have not yet discovered the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. We live with unbelievers. We work with unbelievers. We, we rub shoulders with unbelievers. We fellowship with unbelievers, breaking bread and eating. But yet, in the midst of all of this, we are to live different than unbelievers. In the very next chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says this. He said, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit, and let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that will defy us. Our body how we live our life, and our spirit, what is on the inside. Paul says that we should remove anything and everything from our lives that's going to cause us to live any way but holy. You see, the Bible makes it clear that Christians are to live different than the world. We're to live clean and holy and pure lives. Peter, another apostle, said it this way. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must live holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Now the scripture that Peter is quoting is Leviticus chapter 11 verse 45. And God says that in the midst of these crazy laws that don't make sense to us. In the midst of describing clean and unclean animals. In the midst of describing all these purification rites the nation of Israel was supposed to go through. God says, you be holy because I am holy. Now why did God say that to them in the midst of all these laws that don't make sense to us? The reason is because God was taking them into a pagan land, the land of the Canaanites, where they worshipped pagan gods and they were involved in all types of immoral practices. And God was saying, when you go into this world, you are to live different than them. They are to look at you and the way you live, the habits that you live by, the practices that you put in your life, and they are to go, these people are different. Their God must be different. John MacArthur said this about 
this passage. He said, in all of this, God is teaching his people to live antithetically. In other words, God is teaching us to live different than the world. You see, we don't let the culture that we live in dictate the way we live. We let God's word dictate the way we live. We don't follow the culture which changes every few years. We follow God's word, which is timeless. So, how do we do that? How do we live our life in such a way that we are friends with sinners like Jesus was, and yet at the same time, we are living a life that is separate from sin without coming across as self-righteous or hypocritical. I mean, because we've all met those type of people, amen? And none of us want to be that person. None of us want to be that person. So how, how can you and I live as a friend to sinners, and yet we live in such a way that our life is so different, so separate from sin, that the world recognizes that we are different than they are? Well, let me give you four things. And the four things I'm going to give you aren't a set of do's and don'ts. So understand that. By the way, I'm not going to answer those three questions. It's not my, my place to answer those questions. That's the Holy Spirit's place and the Word of God's place. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is living in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Word of God will guide you. And so don't think that the Christian life is, is some set of do's and some set of don'ts. That's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus that has changed our life to the point that we want to live under His authority and live under His rule. And so how do we do that like Jesus did? Friend of sinners, yet separate from sin. Four things. Here's the first one. If you want to be a friend of sinners and yet separate from sin, you've got to enter into the lives of those who are far from God. You tracking with me? You can't be a friend of sinners from a distance. <laughs> you've got to get into people's lives if you're going to be a friend to them. Oh, oh you, can, you can buy a billboard and post a gospel message you can rent airspace and put on a commercial. You can do all of those things, but understand, you are never going to truly influence the life of anyone who is far from God until you enter into their lives. Jesus was a perfect example of this. Luke chapter 19 tells a story. Jesus is going through Jericho, and as he's going through Jericho, the people have heard that he's coming into the city, and so they're lining the streets, to get a glimpse of Jesus. And one of the people that want to get a glimpse of Jesus is this tax collector, despised tax collector, named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector of the region. And we are told in the Bible that he was short. Do you remember the, story, the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was... See, you did learn something in vacation Bible school. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man. 
was he? Well, here was Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and, and everybody was up front in front of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus, so you know what he did. You know the story. He climbed up in a tree so he could get a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus is walking by, everybody's yelling at him, calling his name, getting him to answer questions, all of these things. And Jesus is walking by, and as he's walking by, he makes eye contact with Zacchaeus, picture Danny DeVito, Zacchaeus DeVito up in that tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, get out of that tree. I'm going to go to your house to eat. Now that tells me something. He, he calls Zacchaeus by name. You know what that tells me? You may say, well, it tells me that God knows everything. Jesus is God, so he knew who Zacchaeus was. Well, yeah, he did. But that's not what that tells you. What this tells us is he already had a relationship with Zacchaeus. See, Jesus went to Jericho often, and, and most likely in some of those visits, he had had conversations with Zacchaeus. It's highly likely that when Matthew threw this party, and all of these tax collectors and sinners came, Zacchaeus was one of them. And maybe that was his first contact with Jesus. And, and so Zacchaeus hops out of the tree, he takes him into his house, and he and Jesus have lunch. Now, we don't know what the conversation entailed, but what we do know is when the conversation was over and they got through eating, Zacchaeus' life was changed. You know how we know that? When Zacchaeus opened the door, this is what he said. He said, today, I'm giving 50% of my income to the poor. Everything that I have, 50% of it is going to help the poor. Let me just tell you, somebody gives 50% of all their money to help the poor, something's happened in their life. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, most of us would rather give up our child than our money. You're laughing. But it's true. I mean, we don't like to give up our money. We worked hard for our money. And here was Zacchaeus. Today I'm giving 50% of everything I have to help the poor. And then he said this. He said, and if I have cheated anyone, I am going to pay them back fourfold what I cheated from them. Whoa! Now, I can picture Jesus right now. It doesn't say this in Luke 19, but I can picture Jesus is standing there next to Zacchaeus, just a big grin on his face. He puts his arm around him, and he says, Today, salvation has come to this household. His life was changed. Why? Because he said, Hey, get out of that tree. I'm going to go into your house and fellowship with you and break bread with you. And so my question for you is this. Who that is far from God are you building a relationship with? Who that is far from God are you spending time with? Who that is far from God are you investing in? Here's what I know. I know this from personal experience. The longer we are Christ followers the less engaged we are with unbelievers. Part of that's normal, it's natural. I mean, we hang out at church and we have church friends that are like us, that we enjoy spending time with, and that's normal, that's natural. And yet, we read that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus hung out with people who were far from God, who were in desperate need of God's love, and so are you. If you want to be a friend of sinners and yet separate from sin, you've got to enter the lives of those who are far from God. 
You can't do that from a distance. Second thing you got to do. You've got to show kindness rather than judgment. Here's what I know. Most of us Christians, look at me, this is a big one. Most of us Christians are real big on judgment. We are. But Jesus was big on kindness. Do you know that the only people that Jesus judged harshly as he walked on the earth were the religious leaders? Did you know that? The only people Jesus judged harshly were the religious leaders. Everyone else he showed kindness. Case in point, John chapter 8. Jesus is walking down the street and the religious leaders bring this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. They flung her to the ground in front of Jesus and they say, the law says stone her, Jesus. What do you say? They were trying to trap Jesus. Jesus didn't answer him. He knelt down on the ground and he began to scribble. We don't know what he scribbled. You know, people have said all kinds of things. We don't know what he scribbled, but he just knelt down and started doing something on the ground in the sand. And after a while, he looked up and he said, okay, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And all of a sudden, the men had to come face to face with their own sins. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus had written down some of their sins in the sand. We, we don't know what he wrote. But the Bible says every one of them left, and all that was left there was Jesus and the woman. Jesus looked up and said, woman, where, where are those who condemned you? And the woman said, they've all left, Lord. And Jesus looked at her and he said, I don't condemn you either. Jesus could have judged her. The law said stone her. Jesus was the one who gave the law. He was the only one who had the right to judge her, and yet he didn't. He said, I don't judge you. I don't condemn you. He showed her grace. He showed her mercy instead of judgment. But then he said this. He said, go. And don't sin anymore. I've forgiven you. I've set you free. Leave that life that has enslaved you. You see, some of us have this idea that, that it's hellfire and brimstone that lead people to repentance. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Romans 2 that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Yeah, there, there are some people who are scared into heaven. They hear about hell and they hear about God's judgment and they truly turn and, and receive Jesus. And, and I praise God for those who do. But the Bible says that the way most people come to faith is through God's kindness. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And so if it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, it's not our job to go out there and throw people's sins in their faces. They already know their sin. They feel guilty for their sin. They have shame because of their sin. Our job is to show the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God. Billy Graham said it this way. He said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. God's job to judge. It's my job to love.
Wow. It's true, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is the only one who can convict of sin. God is the only one who has the right to judge. So where does that leave me? Well, it leaves me to love people just like I needed love. Show kindness rather than judgment. Here's the third thing. Look in the mirror before looking across the table. Chew on that for just a minute. Look in the mirror before looking across the table. Most of us have a tendency to look across the table and judge the person in front of us rather than looking in the mirror and judging ourselves. This is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not judge others and you will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you are using in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Now that's not telling us that we never exercise judgment. That's not saying we never confront person with their sin. We are called to do that in the body of Christ. We're called to hold one another accountable because we love one another. Just like you as parents hold your kids accountable when your kids do stupid stuff, what do you do? You hold them accountable for doing stupid stuff, right? Why do you do that? Is it because you hate them? No, it's because you love them, right? You want what's best for them. And that's why we as a family of faith, we hold one another accountable. But then Jesus said this. He said, and why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't get see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Jesus, what Jesus said, it would have had the people just laughing. Because Jesus is giving this picture of this, this guy who has a big two-by-four sticking out of his eye going to someone who has a little bit of sawdust in his eye saying, let me help you get that sawdust out of your eye. And the guy with the sawdust is saying, watch out, you're going to hit me with your two-by-four. You see, before we can ever help anyone else, we have to deal with our own sin. And here's what I know, hear me. I've got enough sin in my own life to keep me busy, to have to worry about all your sins. So you don't need to worry about me policing you. I mean, it's a full-time job for me to police myself. I, I, I got to tell you, there are things that I used to do that I don't do anymore. But as God has given me victory over some of these things that I used to think were the big things, He's revealed to me even bigger things. Things that, that reveal my heart. Things that reveal who I am on the inside. And, and when he reveals those things to me, he reveals how wretched I am. And you and I need to spend more time looking in the mirror saying, God, show me what I need to deal with so that I can be the person I need to be instead of saying, God, let me show everybody else what they need to be, deal with. We've all met those people. You don't want to be one of them. So quit looking across the table and look in the mirror. Fourth thing, keep a clean heart and you'll have a clean life. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 19. He said, for from, for from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. You see, Jesus said sin is a matter of the heart. If my heart is right, my actions will be right. 
You see, what we need to understand is it's not so much where we are or who we're with as what's in our heart that makes something right or wrong. Did you get that? It's not so much where I am or who I'm with that makes something right or wrong. It's what's in my heart that makes it right or wrong. What are the motives? What are the desires? What are the intents of my heart? Now, does that mean that that I, I need to tell bad jokes? Absolutely not. Does that mean I need to get drunk? Certainly not. The Bible speaks to those things. But there are other questions the Bible doesn't answer specifically. That sometimes we have to just say, okay, God, what is the desire and intent of my heart? Is it to throw myself after the things of the world or is the desire of my heart to build relationships for people who are far from God so that I can reach them with the good news? Tony Campolo is a sociologist and a pastor and and though I don't agree with everything that Tony Campolo has said or has done, I love a story he tells from his past. He was speaking at an event in Hawaii, and, and the event was over late at night, and he went to a greasy spoon diner to get something to eat. And it was late at night. It was about 2, 3 in the morning. He was sitting there finishing his meal, drinking some coffee, when in walked a group of prostitutes. They were loud. They were swearing. I mean, it was just terrible. And Tony Campolo says that immediately his first reaction was, I want to pay for my meal and I want to get out of here. But then he began to overhear a conversation. The first woman said this. She said, you know what? Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. To which the second lady said, so what do you want me to do? Give you a birthday party? You want me to give you a cake? You want me to sing happy birthday to you? First lady said, oh, come on. Why do you have to be so mean? Why do you have to put me down? I'm just saying it's my birthday. I, I don't want anything from you. I, I mean, I've never had a birthday party. I just thought it'd be fun to have a birthday party. Well, Campolo said that that statement broke his heart. To think that this 39-year-old woman who was on the street never even had a birthday party. When a couple of minutes the prostitutes left and Tony Campolo went to the cook that was behind the grill and he said, hey, do you know those women? And he said, sure, they're in here every night about this time. He said, what about the lady who said tomorrow's her birthday? What's her name? He said, her name is Agnes. So Tony Campolo talked to the cook and the waitresses that were in there and they decided that they were going to throw Agnes a birthday party the next night. They bought her balloons and decorations. Tony Campolo went out and bought a cake for her and the next night around 2, 3 in the morning they were all in there and when the prostitutes walked in the door everyone said, Happy birthday Agnes! And they began to sing Happy Birthday and Tony Campolo held the birthday cake out to her. She was speechless. She didn't know what to say. She took the birthday cake. And some of her friends said, cut the cake, cut the cake, cut the cake. And she said, do I have to? I, I don't want to be selfish or anything, but, but, but can, I, can I just enjoy it for a little bit? I've never had a birthday cake before. 
And with that, she walked out of the diner, and everybody got quiet. Saying, what do we do now? And Tony stood up on a chair, and he said, hey, why don't we gather around and pray for Agnes? And Tony began to pray for Agnes. He prayed for her safety. He prayed for her health. Prayed that God would change her life. After he got through praying, the, the cook behind the grill said, Hey, are you a preacher? What kind of church do you go to? Tony Capolo said, The kind that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I believe, with all my heart, that's the kind of church Jesus would go to today if he were here. You see, we get so self-righteous and so absorbed in our purity that we separate ourselves from the very people Jesus came to die for. And we need to ask ourselves, can I really be called a friend of sinners while I'm remaining pure and holy, separate from sin? That's what we're called to do. And I'm here to tell you, that when we as a church begin to do that, really do that, building a balcony will not be enough. Because people are looking for answers. People know something is missing. But we have become so self-righteous that we can't simply just love them into the kingdom. I'm speaking for me. And I'm speaking for you. Most of you. It's time we repent. It's time we become a friend to sinners while remaining separate from sin. It's what God wants us to do. So this morning, I'm going to give you two invitations, two challenges. First of all, there, there are probably some of you in here who have never trusted Jesus to be your Savior. You know something's missing. You don't know what it is. You came in this morning with this, this void in your life. You've tried to fill it with things, with people. It's still there. Here to tell you what's missing is a relationship with God that's only found in Jesus. It's the only way. Jesus is the Son of God that came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's me and that's you. And if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior, He is extending an invitation to you this morning. Receive me. Accept me. I love you. And if you do that, He'll save you and He'll change your life. But the second part of the invitation is for those of us who are already believers. And that is this. Let's begin to build relationships with people who are far from God. Let them see how different we are, not weird, different. And love them into the family. Because God loves them. So would you bow your head with me? With your head bowed, if you're here and you say, Rocky, I know I'm at that first point. I'm, 
I don't know Jesus. I've never given my life to him. I've never surrendered to him. And I know I need to do that. I know that's what's missing. And today I'm ready to do that. If that's you, then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Just repeat it after me. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly admitting that I'm a sinner. I failed you. I've disobeyed you. I've lived life my way. I thought I knew best. I'm sorry. I don't want to live that way anymore. I know you love me, Jesus. Today I'm asking you to save me. I'm trusting you. I'm giving my life to you. Fill me with your spirit. Make me brand new. 